Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Hello and welcome to Headliner Radio, where we are honoured to be joined by the one and only Tina Weymouth, legendary bass player and co-founder of Talking Heads and the Tom Tom Club. Uh, Tina is here to have a chat with us about her upcoming UK Remain in Love tour, in which she, alongside Chris France, her husband and fellow Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club co-founder, will be in conversation speaking to audiences about their incredible careers to date in what promised to be some truly insightful and entertaining events. Tina, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, how are you and whereabouts are you joining us from? I'm very well, Dan. Thank you very much. Um, it's my pleasure as well. I'm, I am about 50 miles outside of New York City, which is kind of on the eastern seaboard on the coast in Connecticut, which is sort of like going to the other side of London for you. Okay, I see. Oh, very nice. And, and it's the megalopolis. Yeah, <laughs> lovely. And how are things out there? All good? Well, well, we all we're all sort of breathing a sigh of relief that we kept the Senate. Yes. Um, so, the Remain in Love tour. Can you tell us first of all uh, what audiences will be able to expect from these evenings, and also what it was that made you and Chris decide that you wanted to do these tours? We wanted to do it to come back and see our friends in the UK. It's <laughs> good that's reason. It. <laughs> that's that's really why. Mm. Um, we've, like everyone, we've felt the isolation caused by the lockdowns and the pandemic and the the scares, and so uh, we we just want to reconnect. Yeah, and you know, Chris's book "Remain in Love" came out in the midst of of the lockdown and we never got to, he never got to do his book tour or do anything like that so and this is really fun because i get invited as his sidekick <laughs> i mean i was i was really intrigued to ask you actually how it felt for you to to read chris's book because obviously you know you have you two have been together for you know uh, you know as a as a married couple and professionally for such a long time and it you, you know you're so it, you know in you, you've been alongside one another for that entire period it's not like you've had separate musical careers it's, it's all been very intertwined how did it feel to read his book did it was there anything in there or anything that revealed itself to you that came as a surprise or you were a bit like oh, okay that's strange you know i've never i've never known that i've never thought about that before did it give you a, a different perspective on anything that you were perhaps not expecting or, or, or wasn't previously aware of? Most of it I really was pretty much aware of because I would, I would be saying while he was writing, I was, you know, I was protecting him mm. and um, from distractions. And, and I would be, I would say, Oh, and remember that story you told me about such and such. He said, ah, splendid idea. Mm. And, uh, but he has a very good memory and I, I enjoyed very much reading about, his his very young youth, that was that was sweet and different, mm. and uh, but um, you know he as he kept saying to me, but Tina, it's my memoir. That's why it's called a memoir. You know, <laughs> yeah. I say, but but Chris, don't you remember? It actually it didn't happen in that chronology. He said, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. He was very he was very accurate with the Ramones because not only does he have an excellent memory, but I had kept um, agendas at that time, mm. and uh, so so he was able to consult those. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, I suppose that's uh, it's a great thing for him to have been able to have you there to kind of <laughs> fact check and remind him of various bits and pieces. You know, as, as someone that was so present for for all of the things right. that he was writing about, and also he. He Dan, he was he's a great observer. He always has been. Mm-hmm. He goes into a room and he sees people and he has perfect facial recognition, you know, and doesn't get nominal aphasia like so yeah. many of us do. And he um he really uh he really connects with people. He's just such a social bug, you know. I mean he, yeah. he loves it. He just loves it. And and I must say, I, I've had the blessing of living with one of the happiest men in the world. Mm. And what a gift that is. I mean, yeah, it, it's such a beautiful story, um, the, the story of, of you and Chris. And, and it's a real, 
it's a real rarity in music and the kind of entertainment world, if you like, and showbiz for people to not just be in the same profession and to be together for that length of time, but to work so closely together as well. It's a, it's a really phenomenal story. And, and I was wondering if you could talk to us a, li- a little bit about that, like when you first met and, and how quickly you kind of realised that you were going to be more than just bandmates. Hmm. Well, we, we, we became friends at, at, um, in art school and um and i and when he formed i knew i knew his dream was to form his band and uh which he he did he formed a band called the artistics and um and i had a little um i had a very old little car a, a plymouth valiant that ran like a singer sewing machine it was just brilliant mm. and and i mean i kept it for you know for for 17 years until the floor rusted out yeah. and i <laughs> drive the band everywhere especially chris you know with his drums and then david with his vox amps and so on so um so that was um that was my first role was as as um as a support in a supporting role and then one day um, the band had, had just started doing shows, and one day uh, David came to our painting studio and said, I have written a song called Psycho Killer. I, I just have the title and part of the chorus, and I need more words. So we sat down and um, we wrote. We wrote this song, and um, and and that was a lot of fun. And. Mm. That was our first song in January of '74, and then and then we moved to New York City. We knew we, we thought about London, Paris, Rome. Tokyo was not at not on the map for us yet, nor was Berlin. But um, but we thought about the different places we might like to go, and New York seemed like the place where where a lot of different artists were going i mean it was so and 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 no there was no money i mean new york was broke so it was even more fun because you could just everybody was broke i mean obviously there were those who were not but but we had a lot of fun with no money and and um i mean there was garbage in the streets and rats and and dead dogs uh kept on rooftops and it was just a a crazy, crazy time. We lived a long time uh, for about, um, well, until the <clears throat> mid-80s, we lived in places which had no heat after 4 p.m. Mm. And so we had to, we had to, we had to make sacrifices, but it was well worth it, I can tell you. It was, it was a great chemistry that we had. And then we brought in at the end of 1976, beginning of 1977, we brought in the great Jerry Harrison, who had been with them, you know, uh, had done that amazing Modern Lovers recording. It was a demo, but it became their their one and only album. Jonathan Richman um, with John Cale producing. It was a demo for Warner Brothers, but he came into the group and... And and we got a manager, and then that that was it. And we we had a record company by that time, Seymour Stein of Sire Records. It was very good to be with an independent label, mm. and to have that kind of. Um, I mean, it was it was it was amazing because it takes a team to get things done, and and so it was it was very cool to have people that you could actually go and talk to at the record label as opposed to um you know a big los angeles conglomerate yeah and that was i mean we had really wanted to sign with island records but chris blackwell who's wonderful he came down to cbgb once and he said you know you're a great band but i my job right now is to break bob marley in the world Mm. and i i'm just you know telescopic vision just on that and that's my job and and uh so so it would be later that with when in um 1979 we 
we finished our tour in December of 79 and we came back to the U.S. and we found out David had, David was leaving the group and, and, uh, and then, I mean, eventually he, he, he ended up coming back and we got the Tom Tom Club together. We did remain in light that year. We managed to get him to come over, which was really cool because Brian Eno was living in town in that early 1980 period. And um, he and David, I don't know what happened to them, but they had started out making My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which was an idea that was really Holger Zuka from Cannes. Holger Zuka took us at the, um, the, Ber- the Berlin Wall um, studio where Eno was working. He took us uh, into a room and said, Chris, uh, Tina, David, come over and listen to listen to this. And he had this, he had uh, all this, um, these found radio vocals and different kinds of vocals that he, uh, recordings, uh, found samples that he put over top of his own music. And he said, don't tell anybody because I haven't got a, a label yet. So David went off. Immediately, this is December of 1979. He meant immediately. I had no idea about this for, for, for two or three years because it didn't come out for such a long time. And, uh, I was never privy to their, to, uh, listening to what they were doing. So that, that came out after Remain in Light, mm-hmm. which was, which was very weird because, um, they started it like, Three years before, or two years before, yeah. it came out. Came out what, nineteen eighty? No. So they started. They started Bush of Ghosts, but that didn't come out till eighty one, mm. something like that. Yeah. So we ended up. Uh, we ended up t- um, not knowing what was going on between them, but we knew Brian Eno was in town, and we said, "Oh, Brian, guess what? We're um, we're jamming." In, we, we always wrote and, and jammed in our loft. Chris is in my loft in Long Island City. And that's, in fact, we had recorded our uh, Fear of Music in, the, in, um, in, in 1979, same, same place. In the spring of 79, we recorded it there. And so we said, we're going to jam. And, we're, and Brian said, Oh, but you know, I don't play any instruments, not really. And we said, that's okay. We're all, um, we, Chris and I are just having fun. We have, uh, we have, um, decided we're just going to play each other's instruments and see what, you know, and, and try to be like children who are excited again about, oh, look at this wonderful toy. Look what it can do. Mm. And not, not take ourselves very seriously. Yeah. So, cause I think, I think fear of music was our best rock album, you know? Mm. And, and I really thought we might be going in that direction, but, but with things as they were, it, it we just had to keep our minds open. Yeah. And, and so when Jerry Harrison called us and he said, what do you mean, Brian Eno's over there jamming with you? He said, "Yeah, he's jamming with us," and and <laughs> <laughs> it was very funny because he said, "I'll be right over," yeah. and 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 then so then we said, "Well, you know, let's give David a call and see see about him because he's really trying to play hard to get." And uh, so he said, "Oh, you know, David." Ryan and Jerry over here jamming with us. We're having fun. He was over there within an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was that was very funny. And 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 um, we did have really fun. Mm-hmm. And eventually, we we kind of ended up playing our own instruments. But we got some cool little little sketches and ideas that we took into the studio and then, you know, created this whole album called remain in light. And, and, uh, so that was a, that was a wonderful, um, experience. We still, we had this great chemistry and, you know, especially the, 
the three talking heads with Jerry, the fourth talking head. And then Brian, you know, you know, he, he liked to, he liked to, um, he liked to, he liked us a lot, I think. Yeah. And we liked him a lot. So, so, and we had a great, we had great engineers and so on. Yeah. I mean, how did, how did it feel being in that band, particularly during that period? Because going from, you know, that, that debut album, which is a, a brilliant kind of, you know, scratchy, post-punk you know art punk art rock album whatever you want to label it and then a few years later you're making records like fear of music and remain in light it's such a it's such a quick evolution over the space of a few albums to go from from 77 to remain in light and they they it sounds like a different band in some ways it's a completely different world that, that had been created how did it feel to be not just you know writing that music but was there a conscious sense of you know we want to make these big dramatic creative leaps with each record or was it just something that was a little bit more organic and simple than that it was just the way that the band naturally evolved because it's seldom seen i think in 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 pop and rock music for for bands to make such a i mean outside of the beatles i can't really think of anyone else that over the course of three or four albums made such a vast changed their sound and then you just look at the band live you know how you went from a, a four-piece to whatever it was when you were <laughs> touring remain in light when you had all these extra musicians how did you go about making that happen so seamlessly well thank you um for saying that um actually i mean to be compared to the beatles are you kidding uh so in f- actually the the first two albums were all written before Jerry entered the band. Mm. They were written in 75 and 76. Well, Psycho Killer in 74. And then, of course, Take Me to the River was something that Chris said, oh, why don't we do this song, you know, as well. And, of course, we never, David never wanted to do another cover song because that was that was our first single that, that had some national uh, interest. And I think it helped us a great deal. And we had a we had a really really uh, kicking version of it, but but yes, the fir- those those first two albums, seventy seven and more songs about buildings and food. They were they were all written before we even left. You know, before we went on tour. Mm. So so I think it was once we started going on tour, we went to. Um, for instance, we opened, I mean, we, our first tour is we're still making our first album, 77. And we went to open for the Ramones on tour of Europe and the UK. And, and that was so exciting. And, and it, it, it kind of changed us and who we were. Now we had Jerry when Jerry really worked really hard to adapt and, and understand that he would sometimes he was doubling me sometimes he was doubling david but but then he by doing that he came to know who we were so by the when we when we hit the ground running right out of our tour you know 78 and 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 in 79 we really had um we really had a different kind of approach mm. um and now we were a four piece. We were really a truly a quartet. And and I think I think it was it was great uh to to um to do it that way. It was quite organic and I, I think it was just an, a natural growth uh an outgrowth of having traveled the world, of having seen people, of having heard things and now we were two years older and and then remain in in light was a whole different thing. I did, I told you about it, how we came to that with mm. the with all the layering and everything. Yeah. It was they were not uh, constructed as you know the the normal verse chorus verse chorus. In fact, we you know we um, they were kind of limited to basically two chords. But like jazz, you can take two chords and you can put things on top and you can create 
new chords and new dimensions on top of that. And it was a, it was that was an eye opener for us to to work in that way. And we we worked again that way for speaking in tongues. And I think we've kind of worked that way pretty much since. But you know, it always start with um, drums and bass until we came to the 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 albums that 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 David wanted for his true stories movie. Mm. Um, then, then he went to very sort of uh, uh, old fashioned format songwriting. Yeah. Pop songwriting. And, the, and so there was, and so there the band was more because he had these sketches in mind, you know, with, with the kind of lyrics and a kind of, you know, a kind of approach for his film. And so, so one, one is, we did both of those albums back to back. One actually, one is actually the film hmm. songs. And then the other album is, are the outtakes, the, the, the ones that didn't get into the film and they, but they worked very well in their own right, but very differently, hmm. very differently from, I, th- I think we had something very special, but then there was a, I can't, I, I don't know what you would call it, but yeah, there was a little competition, I suppose, going on, mm. but I, I don't really know. I don't really know. I can't really be in other people's heads, but yeah. I think uh, just being enthusiastic about how great it was that our chemistry was that what it was that we could come up with stuff that we never ran out of ideas. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, how, how, how did it feel for you when, when the band did eventually split and as, as a second part to that question, how, 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 how much of an impact was well, not how much of an impact, but how, how much did the fact that you and Chris had the Tom Tom club kind of, uh, perhaps reduce the impact of the loss of Talking Heads because you had this other incredibly, you know, acclaimed, successful project that you that you kind of had going anyway. Did it did it kind of soften the blow, or, or was it not even a blow? Did you feel like the time was was kind of right for the band to 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 finish at that point? Can you just tell us a little bit about the kind of final days of the band and and how that felt? Hmm. Let me close this door here. Because I have, there's another interview going on in another room. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I can get quite distracted hearing that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, we weren't prepared at all because we just signed a big contract that had taken six years, you know, of payments to lawyers and managers and so on to put together <laughs> yeah. a five album contract. Wow. And so we were not prepared and we were not told. So that was that and you know you know Chris and I grew up we were the children of you know he, he of an army officer me of a um with my brothers and sisters of a of a naval officer and it's you know in the military it's it's a family and it's it's a meritocracy and honor and duty and service are just it's just part of the way of life and so why would you ever, you you would always be forthcoming and forthright. I mean, obviously, loose lips sink ships. But uh, no, we, we were taken aback because mm. David actually told us, uh, I'm on sabbatical. Mm. And so we, ha- we sat on the fence waiting and waiting and waiting. You know, we didn't form another band. Uh, Tom Tom Club was a good thing. Our manager felt he he said we started getting you know offers from promoters to take both bands on the road. Tom Tom Club was a dance band. We never intended to take it on the road or have it be a touring band. You know that was just we were doing that because both um, David and Jerry had gone off to do their solo albums. Mm. And so, but we still had to, you know, be loyal to the band and come back. I mean, we, that was always our intention. We, we never had any other intention other than to, I mean, Talking Heads was our baby. 
We mm. just loved it. And so for a while, Tom Tom Club was good because it went gold long, bef- long before Talking Heads did. And people didn't know who we were. You know, they, people didn't know. They found some, a lot of people were introduced to Talking Heads because in interview, they found out that Tom Tom Club was also in Talking Heads. Yeah. So that was great because now we could, now we could really make a sandwich, you know, with butter on, you know, on both pieces of bread and really, really get something going. We were, it was so, good to get talking heads up there right and 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 really um promote it and that was a lot of that was through tom tom club and and a lot of the gigs we got uh were were thanks to that tom tom club and so we didn't mean to tour we didn't want to do shows but we we ended up doing it so that tom talking heads would continue and i remember we even played wembley Stadium, you know, as Tom Tom Club opening for Talking Heads, (laughs) just to get us back there, Um, because we weren't really highly in demand at that point. But but um, and I but I think we would have just we were just getting bigger, little by little. It was a it was a gradual process. So yeah, it wasn't right. Mm. It wasn't right. No. The way it was done, it wasn't the proper way. But that's about all I have to say about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and do you have a particular kind of favourite era of Talking Heads? I know earlier on you said that Fear of Music is, you know, you think the band's best rock album, but you know, you you've got that kind of the first few few records where it feels like a it's a four piece rock band. Then you have Remain in Light and the you know the the now kind of famous uh, nineteen eighty Rome concert, which has become like a huge sensation on YouTube, where you've got all these different influences and different musicians. That feels almost like another era or identity for the band. And then you've got post that, where, as you said, you've got the uh, the the True Stories kind of album and the film that come with it. Is there a particular era that you look back on most fondly from the band, or do you mm-hmm. kind of view it all as all as a whole? Oh, it's kind of like school days, hmm. you know. Can you pick a favorite grade? Yeah, you can pick favorite teachers. Yeah, I can. I I can certainly. I mean, we had some wonderful players with us. I mean, I I just adored having Bernie Worrell from hmm. Parliament Funkadelic with us. He was just so great. He was so supportive of everybody, and. Um, and you know we were very respectful of of each other, and that was a that was a that was just a boon. And then we had and Steve Scales on percussion was was just a phenomenal person um, and performer. And then we had the great Alex Weir on guitar, he's just amazing guy. And um, one tour we had Adrian Ballou, and 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 it was after that that I asked Adrian Ballou to come and be the leader of the band that I was forming with Chris Tom Tom Club hmm. but he got confused I think yeah. that that I, I often wonder if he got confused because he was his roommate was Busta Cherry Jones okay <laughs> Busta is one of my favorite people in in the world he's he's gone now but but he was um he was so much fun but he was also he was wild. Mm. I mean, totally wild guy. I mean, he had to have so many antibiotics, so much penicillin because of, of the people that he slept with. And that made it really difficult for Adrian because <laughs> he'd bring people into the room. And sometimes I remember one night in Italy, um, Adrian actually came to sleep in, with Chris and I in our room. Because because he said Buster's just I'm not going to get any sleep tonight. Buster's just so <laughs> so we had we had you know it was it was it was pretty these were pretty amazing times mm. and um, there it's all there there were some bad things that happened too but but mostly good yeah I mean the the tendency of the memory is to go back to the good things. Like old, 
like old warriors, mm. you know, the good times, you know, yeah. the good old days. But no, we, it was a lot of sacrifice. There was a lot of bending over backwards to, to, mm. to, to keep people satisfied and contented because we had some very fussy people. I mean, not just about what they ate, you know, but, <laughs> but everything, everything. And it wasn't until, you know, just maybe uh, two years ago that I found out that the women musicians, uh, Dolette McDonald, who sang with us in 1980, that great, um, and then later uh, Lynn Mabry and, and uh, there was Stephanie Sproul. She, she was only in, um, in Australia, but, we, and Edna Holt, who was a great singer, uh, they were, Edna Holt and Lynn Mabry were both in the Stop Making Sense film. Mm-hmm. And you, and they, I did not know that they were not paid the same, same as the men. Oh, wow. Musicians. Oh, who knew? <laughs> I mean, I had no idea. I mean, I wasn't getting paid because all my money was going to, transport this i mean every it was to pay the salaries the hotels the airfares the bus the the gasoline the uh, you know all the insurance uh, the lawyers i mean you know you pay agents and management right off the top you're you're of your gross you're paying 45 percent just to those people. And then out of the 55% left over, you're paying the salaries, hotel, airfare, uh, transportation, everything else. Um, So, so I wasn't, you know, with the big band, Chris and I never made any money, but we made money from, uh, we saved. I mean, we just, even though, even living, we lived, you know, very frugally, like I said, you know, in a loft without heat and, and, um, so, and we just would, we would pretty much put away half of everything we made. Cause I think, you know, a great source of happiness is to be stoic and pragmatic, you know, yeah. because that's, that's really where your happiness is, is, is that you're just keeping things controllable and simple because there's so much suffering and so much that's not in your control. That's about the only thing you can control. Yeah, is uh, is your, ex- you know how? So, so yeah. I mean, we we had some. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I'll save that. I'll save that for my book. Yes. <laughs> Great. So, I mean, you you were talking a moment ago about the some of the kind of challenges and sacrifices that came uh, with certain eras of, of talking heads particularly as a live act um you know with, with the kind of costs and expenses of taking such a large band out on the road um how did that kind of compare to when you were performing and doing work with the tom tom club you know was that a very different working atmosphere and environment to the talking heads environment because presumably there would have I, I, I get the impression as a fan and, and, you know, obviously someone not inside the band that, that that might have had a kind of lighter feel without maybe some of the more kind of stressful aspects that could have come with, with being in Talking Heads. I don't think there was the great, you know, rush to compete, you know. Yeah. It, um, it, was, it was very, the karma was just beautiful. And, and of course, Chris and I, bent over backwards to, to um, take care of everybody, you know, and, and to give everybody um, lots and lots of love and credit and whatever we had. Yeah. So, so, so there was a, there was just a, a beautiful thing happening and there was, and it was thanks to Chris Blackwell, you know, who was setting up, he was attempting to set up an artist colony down there and, it was an amazing experience because he was working in the big studio A where the Rolling Stones and ACDC and Talking Heads had worked. 
Um, and we were working in the smaller studio. He was working um, producing Grace Jones with the uh, the great uh, engineer who's no longer with us, Alex Sadkin. And, and the Compass Point All-Stars, that's what they're called now. They didn't have a name back then. Mm. But there was Wally Badaru on key, you know, who was playing keyboards. Um, there was... Um, I, I I don't um there was um Mikey Chung who's playing guitar. Great Mikey Chung. Sly and Robbie. I mean total gods. So great. And and they were um the rhythm section. Sly Dunbar on drums, Robbie Shakespeare on, on bass guitar. And uh who else was with them? Sticky um Thompson on percussion. He's very spiritual uh rastafarian so full of happiness tyrone downey was with them for a little while um he had he was suffering hugely because at that time i think this is 1981 this is just when bob marley was in the hospital dying of cancer and i think it was just so hugely painful for that larger family which was the whalers mm. and uh huge loss huge grief terrible and and so um with loss there was also the new freshness of creating putting together this band tom tom club and working with a very young engineer i think he was 23 at the time Stephen Stanley, we always call him Stevie or Little Scratch. We sometimes refer to him as Little Scratch. And, and he had learned a lot about how, you know, about how to make records from Sly and Robbie and, and you know, how to EQ and so on and so forth. So the karma was just magnificent there. And, and there was all this, this beautiful love. Yeah. Amazing. Coming through. And I think the microphones picked it up. I had my sisters, my my adorable sisters Lonnie and Laura there. Hmm. I mean I have I have many sisters, but but those were the two that who were in New York City. They came down to sing with me. And I think thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and there was uh Adrian Ballou. He kind of got stolen away after just a we just did uh, five tracks of guitar, and he off he went to King Crimson. Mm. So, but that was, but but still, just for that short time, um, it was a wonderful experience. I I fully accept expected him to return and sing some songs. I waited for a couple of months. Yeah, and and I got him a record deal. With uh, I, I I suggested to Chris Blackwell that he would be a wonderful part of the artist colony, and he gave. But I don't think Adrian ever knew that. I think he was really, really, um, totally. He loved being with Robert Fripp, and I think that that's where he belonged in the end. That was much better for him. Yeah, and he's a prog. He's a prog rock guy. You know. Yeah. And um, and so that that worked out very well. Yeah. But we also had an um, another amazing guitarist, um, rhythm guitarist, Monty Brown. He's no longer with us. He was um, he was an extraordinary rhythm guitarist. He he played with the T Connection, a funk outfit that out of, based out of Miami. And uh, I think at this point, Monty was just playing in some hotel band down in Nassau. Mm-hmm. And and so, oh, my God, he came and he just he just knocked it out of the ballpark, as we say over here. Yeah, and it was just he, he really made it into a dance record because much as I adore Adrian, um, uh, he didn't have that that. He didn't have that funk thing that yeah. Chris and I were kind of keen on getting into, you know, uh, and and working with. I mean, David Byrne plays a great funky rhythm 
scratch guitar. Um, mm. More like, a, well, you think of um, Bootsy Collins, you know, the, the James Brown's band, mm. Bootsy's older brother. Um, what was his name? Fish uh, Collins, Catfish Collins. Mm. Catfish Collins, he's also no longer in the world, but he was a great, that that whole James Brown and the JBs, those were these young, young Detroit cats who yeah. were play, playing, I mean, they they just transformed the whole the whole sound yeah. which of, of soul, which would then, you know, eventually become funk. Yeah, I, I was wondering about, uh, you know, about your particular kind of approach to to playing bass and how you developed your 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 way of playing bass because it's a really, you know, the the bass part, the, the rhythm section, but particularly the bass, I think, is, is such a such a central part of that talking head sound, you know. And and I was wondering if you could t- tell us a little bit about not just how you came to, to you know, your how you started playing bass and your approach to the instrument, but how you then adapted that style to kind of fit with this evolving beast Mm -hmm. that was the talking heads band. It was always about adapting Um, because I would, you know, I played a little folk guitar, played a little flute. I played English handbells as a, as you know, in my youth. And so, um, yeah, bass was, bass was what was needed. And and I and it's really thanks to both Chris, who had he was the most accomplished player when we began as a trio, and and also da- David. The two of them, the idea was I shared their sensibility, but let's mold her. <laughs> and I was a bit of a slave, hmm. but a slave to the rhythm, right? <laughs> but but I really was a slave and and a little machine that had to. But after at the end of, of of just six months of just, you know, we 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 jammed and rehearsed, you know, four or five hours every single night, every day of the week, mm. for that before we did our first audition in May of. 1975 so we had it was about five and a half months of it was just so intense this and that after a while of doing this it just sort of gelled in my mind like a gestalt you know how to fit in with the two of them so it was really about them Mm. and what they did but I couldn't always we didn't have a tape recorder. David had a little dictaphone, which is really for executives to write notes, make vocal, you know, verbal notes. Um, but I, you can't hear bass on it. You really can't hear much, but could sort of vaguely hear the structures of songs. So we had, I had to memorize everything. I had to create a, a, a form of notation that worked for me. And, um, and we just we just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and just grew and just evolved the, the three of us it was like uh being in a a cauldron of 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 creative you know feverish activity mm. and we were we were terrified that because we we weren't good you know we weren't um these accomplished players we just thought, well, we've got to just really avoid. Uh, we've been to art school, so we, we really had to avoid being what they called derivative. We had to, you know, you know, your, you know, the history of art, you know, the history of rock and roll, you know what Chuck Berry was doing, you know what the blues was doing. But, okay, you can build on that, but maybe... Maybe don't just rely on it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe kind of pushers. And of course, when we were writing, we were always trying to create something that was um, kind of beyond our limitations. So we would just, you know, having to keep keep trying, keep trying until it until it it, it gels. Yeah. It was just persistence. Hmm. 
And I mean, real persistence. And there was a, oh my God, there's a lot of frustration, like, ah, I want to get this, but, um, but you just have to do that. I mean, just think about it, think about it, live with it, digest it, think about it some more, sleep on it. Mm. And it's there. And then it's, and then it's starting. It comes, it comes. And then, of course, with the big band, it was a, it was a whole different, different kind of approach. It was trying to make sure you don't step on other people and make sure you leave space for people. And I mean, I, I, I listen to these jam bands today and I'm just appalled. Not only are they completely derivative, mm. but they don't leave, they, 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 they will, Ask somebody, like, ask a great, great player to sit in with them, and they won't give them any space. Mm. They're just noodling and noodling and noodling away. And, hey, give him some air. Let him come forward. Let let him shine. Let people hear him. Mm. You were on stage all night. You're going to ask him to sit in on your encore, and you're just going to, like, 17 people are going to noodle? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So... So I think that was that was a that was the good thing about Talking Heads is that we really loved the the people we were playing with, and we had mm. I I I'm absolutely mortified that uh, the women musician singers were not paid what the men were paid. Yeah, I just that's find shocking. That, it is shocking, but I had no idea. They, why didn't they tell me? I shared a dressing room with them. Why didn't they tell me? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, that's crazy. Um, and, you know, hopefully something why did, that... Why did why were we left in the dark, you know? I mean... Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that's you know, obviously terrible. And, uh, and you know, hopefully mm-hmm. something that is at least partway to, uh, I don't know, to, to changing with the industry today. I know there's still lots wrong with it, but you'd hope that something like that wouldn't be able to, to kind of go under the radar at the moment. Cause it's pretty, uh, yeah, pretty appalling. Um, yeah. I mean, on that subject of the, the kind of less is more approach to playing and the not, you know, kind of noodling and trying to fill every bit mm-hmm. of space with, with playing. Would you think about where, where to leave space and where to leave room for these songs to breathe as opposed to what can I play and how can I feel Fill the gaps in 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 the in, in the music. There may not well, even be a question there, to be honest. <laughs> for its own emotion, you know. Yeah. You know, sometimes you know. Um, most often, the the music came first and the lyric last. But but when we did write songs where we where we knew we're both you know where both were coming together. Um, stop that, little doggy. <laughs> Uh, Bobby, you don't need to do that. Um, so, truly, we're 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 looking after my brother, my brother-in-law's dog, and 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 my and my my son and daughter-in-law's dog. They're on tour of Europe right now. They're they've just they're leaving today to go down to Spain. Um, nice. They're in France at the moment. Um, they're completely. They're they're called Zeno and Oaklander. And they're they're really good. They're called I think they're called Cool Wave, yeah, or or Cold Wave. But it's it's I think it, originally I think it was very techno based. But they're getting they're they're really um, they're growing also. It's very amazing. Oh, and fantastic! She's a, a beautiful ethereal voice. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, so so. I, I would say that reminds me, uh, talking about um, Liz from Zeno and Oaklander, it makes me realize, of course, you know, I had a really, I loved classical music. I grew up listening to that, but I also li- listened. My parents had a lot of Calypso records, you know, from Trinidad and, and, and also Library of Congress records like Lead Belly, for okay. instance, and Robert Johnson. So we had those, and and then of course there was rock and roll. My older, much older brother and sister had forty fives, and they they um, you know had 
dance parties and it was as a you know a little seven eight-year-old kid that was just phenomenal to me he was listening to this that stuff um buddy holly and so on so you know i think classical music i think in the beginning my what i wanted yeah because we didn't want to do you know, 12 bar blues. Mm. Um, but I love it. I love the blues and jazz because it's so uniquely American and I'm an American, but I also come out of that European culture, mm. classical music. And I love that too. And so I think it was a meld, um, something that one just absorbs through the American radio. We had great radio. They use compression. Unlike the BBC, which just cuts off the low end and cuts off the high end, we had compression mm. on radio, which made it sound good. Um, I wouldn't say our radio sounds good anymore because they just, everything is like, a, you know, little eight bits of digital information with all of the, the good stuff dropping out. Mm. We're just listening to satellite radio and whatnot because of the the mega corporations that have but chris is part of um an amazing small volunteer uh volunteer community radio station it's and it's been noted in the new yorker magazine that it's the best little radio station in the world wow get it on satellite wpkn and um, and it has everything, something for everyone. Yeah. Amazing. Jonathan Richmond noted when he passed through town, what a great radio station. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's the real deal where where you, you, you actually, the DJs actually play what they have selected to play. Oh, fantastic. I'll and you can that. get it at, at W, yeah, internet, you can get it at WPKN.org. Yeah. I, I suppose I'm supposed to mention, but I can't see them because the screen is kind of obscuring. I'm going to put my glasses on here so I can look. Um, the places where we're playing, ah, I'm supposed yes. to mention. I, I yes. have these here. Um, do you have them? The I do. Shalodian in yes, Oxford? That's right. The so, the, yeah, the, the Remain in Love uh, tour dates in the UK in mm -hmm. 2023 are the... Uh, Shalodian Theatre in Oxford on May the 23rd uh, the Electric 25th. Ballroom 25th, sorry yes. um, let me start that one I again I put my glasses on <laughs> so I can see it's, that tiny type it's the uh, Shalodian Theatre in Oxford on May 25th uh, the Electric Ballroom in London on May 27th and uh, the Brudenell Social Club in Leeds on May 28th oh, a um, fantastic venue yeah, it's uh, I, over here. That's kind of been one yeah. of the leading sort of independent grassroots venues for, for for years. It's kind of I think it's won kind of all sorts of awards for for what it's done for like, the grassroots scene. It's it's a it's a brilliant venue. It's 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 like it's like your CBGBs in a way because the 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 club man. It's terrible. I don't remember his name. It's been about ten years, but he's. He's so cool that mm. he really takes care of you. And he, he even got us wellies for to play in Glastonbury the next day. <laughs> he made nice. sure because we didn't have time to go out and, and get some. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, that's and, brilliant. and so, I mean, he it, it's just such a, a great place for fans to gather. Mm. That, that, that whole sense of a, a grassroots, you know, music community that – you know, has been so heavily kind of spoken and written about and mythologized from the, the kind of early talking heads days in New York with CBGBs and, uh, you know, the, the whole scene that was taking place in New York at that time. Do you feel like that's been, you know, perhaps, uh, romanticized or, or glamorized to a, to a point where it's been blown out of proportion a little bit, or was it really, uh, genuinely a kind of tangible melting pot of, 
great bands and creativity and art and and all those things that i think people now look back on in the way they look back at you know the 60s in london or something like that is it did well, how real course. does it feel to you now with distance of course there's a lot of mythologizing but it really was great i mean we had people there from tokyo yeah checking us out and and um and and you know lots of british bands came to through as well i mean it was it really was what you think it was it was a a brewing pot and it was and there were everybody was we we were very supportive of each other thanks to hilly crystal mm. so there might not be a big crowd there there are many more people who remember being there than actually could have possibly have been there <laughs> but <laughs> but it was but it really was truly an awesome situation not every night but when it was happening it was so happening mm. and it just would blow your mind yeah amazing and uh and and lastly um just on the Remain in Love uh, uh, talks that you'll be doing, I was wondering if there was if there are any particular things or moments from your career and and yours and your yours and Chris's careers that you're looking forward to talking to, or uh, that you think perhaps you don't get asked about enough, or that have perhaps been overlooked. You know, because presumably, you know, always lots of questions about Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club, but you've had such a varied career. You've you've produced work for other bands you've collaborated with all sorts of different artists are there any any sort of aspects or moments from your career that you think actually i'd really like to talk about that for once or i'm looking forward to to chatting a little bit about this and not just another question about remaining light as you know i've I've probably fired (laughs) too many at you over the course of this chat but um yeah just wondered if there are any moments you think have perhaps been either overlooked or uh underplayed perhaps in, in in your career Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, there are great artists that we worked with. I mean, it was, we really had fun, you know, making uh, Ziggy Marley, working with Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers. Hmm. And, um, and then even, even more fun, if that's possible, was working with Los Fabulosos Cadillacs, Hmm. who are like the giant biggest band in Argentina. And South America, they're on, and uh, they're just huge. And when they play in New York City, they they fill the biggest venues, you know. So, because that their fandom reaches that, you know, it's international. Mm. And and uh, there are so many people I wish we could have worked with, because because we would be busy with one thing, we couldn't do that too. But gosh, we've been darn lucky. You know, even the Happy Mondays, I have, I, at the time it gave us white hairs. I mean, we woke up in the morning and I said, oh my God, not possible. But, you know, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was insane, but it was interesting. It was very interesting. You can't say we were bored. Um, and, uh, and and uh that that was that was a lesson too <laughs> yeah i can imagine <laughs> i mean i think that pretty much everything they were involved with at that point was yeah, yeah quite quite um they really they quite really, incredible wasn't they really, it really yeah they totally led us astray they said oh we you know they sent over their you know their best person paul ryder <laughs> who's the most normal seeming to to say yes we want to make a record like nirvana did where where the band plays uh songs and we said oh yeah that's what we do so sure and we had no idea we didn't know how they they had been you know how they had been tracked before we'd never <laughs> we just didn't know <laughs> we didn't know anything about but it was very interesting um and quite a challenge yeah very, very challenging i think you know we were just in our we were just turned 40 and they were just turned 30 and they acted like we were so old <laughs> 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 which is like 
what? You know, <laughs> but we were, we were, we had to be like um, parents, even to their parents. They, they brought the writers brought their parents. I think Mr. Ryder was reading the, uh, a biography of John Belushi to try to understand his own children. <laughs> and I, it, and, and he was only 50 years old. So I thought, boy, this is like the blind leading the blind leading the blind. And, they're, and they still think they're children because they're 30. And, and we're not. So I just thought, wait a minute. They've never, had a, they've never been brought up. They're all children. How, how, all children. They how, thought they worked for factory records. How did you how did you get any grasp over those sessions and and make anything happen? I I had I had to, you know, I mean the drummer never wanted to hear the band. He just wanted to have a click track in his cans. Mm. And I couldn't understand that. Like how yeah. how would you do that? How can but he was like an athlete. And he was. He was a very good football player and 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 so he just played, and then he said, now I'm done. The rest of you have to do your bit. And so it was really interesting because they each had a, had their own approach to how, how to get things done. But I would try to count for them because, you know, okay, now we've arrived. Okay, four. Now we're going to do the change here. But, you know, it was they weren't changing. They were just all over the place. <laughs> and, and uh so, so, and I think Moose, I loved him. He played guitar. He had a, a book, a thousand guitar chords. And he'd, he would open the book and he'd say, I'm going to play this chord and this chord today. And he did <laughs> very well. And and I, it was just a really different way of, of doing things from the way I had done them. And then, of course, when it came time for... Um, for lyrics, for for vocals, that was very difficult. And of course, nobody told us, "Hey, guess what? They're junkies." <laughs> yeah. And we, and we thought, "Well, what happened here? What <laughs> <laughs> you send them overseas to an island where you could be hanged for having a joint? Oh my goodness!" <laughs> It's, and and I I just couldn't believe it. And uh, Sean, Sean, they said the first day. Oh, Sean dropped his methadone bottle in the airport, and apparently he was on the floor licking it up off the floor as much as he could just for the plane ride. Oh so he had God. nothing. He arrived, and the only thing he could get was crack cocaine. Which is just so destructive, mm. completely insane, and uh, so of course it it meant you know fewer and fewer returns. And on the yeah. third day, I was holding Bez's arm to just try to keep the bone from popping through the skin until the ambulance came. Wow! And and then he says <laughs> he says to his wife girlfriend says light me a cigarette so he lit he smoking the cigarette and of course the nausea overcame him and so so we're we're bringing ashtrays for him to vomit in (laughs) it was insane 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 i mean i i find it amazing how they (laughs) how they made any releasable music do you know what i mean it's quite a it's quite an unbelievable feet that yeah. um that anyone managed to uh well, get enough I, I out love, of them in the studio you know it's it's quite quite phenomenal really it was a great it it made for a great film 24 hour party people yeah great film i mean all those bands i loved tony wilson and i never understood uh exactly um his philosophy because he allowed the bands to just run amok, but it was his philosophy, and he was he was pretty brilliant at it. And he he really wanted to he wanted them to just figure out what they were doing. 
for themselves. And um, that was kind of commendable in a way, although it had to, it had to have contributed to his early demise, which was much too early, Mm. much too early. Yeah, that was very sad, but you're you're right. I I, I think the, the legacy of what came out of Manchester at that point and factory records and and the bands that were around that there's, I mean, yeah, there's there's a yeah, lot of the, the drug culture was very dangerous, and nobody yeah. really recognized it. And you know, they don't they don't over here either. They, you know, um, it's 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 for partying, and they they don't really recognize that. Oh, actually, you're promoting some really hideous gangsters who are going to get who are going to take over whole countries. Yeah, you know, so you're you're not doing the world a favor you're you're really you're doing the wrong thing here um yeah i mean oof. did you ever see that series on netflix hideous series called ozark yes yes i did watch that mm. Mm. Well, yeah. were, were you not a fan of that show well i watched it all i mean sort of like roadkill fascination mm. of oh my gosh i mean it Mm. You know, you just know what's coming. It's yeah, yeah. It's, it's they, don't, it's they don't they don't have to write the ending. Yeah, yeah. It's quite it writes itself, it and, does. and that's always the way. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, on you know, on that subject of the the whole Manchester scene and the drug culture, I do think that was something that I think, but maybe in the generation that followed, it, it almost became a little bit. Again, possibly a little bit romanticised, I think. But you kind of you, you hear about what you know what went on with the Happy Mondays and you know, mm-hmm. so many of the other bands from that that era. And it's like, okay, yeah, this is actually quite serious. You know, there's some real real dark stuff mm-hmm. uh, going on underneath all of the the kind of funny stories and things like that. Because there are, you know, some of it. I, I remember reading Sean Ryder's autobiography, and like there are laugh out loud moments in it. It's oh, yeah. it's really funny, and then it's also really dark <laughs> at points. It's like, okay, yeah, the this isn't, you know, this isn't a cartoon. These are, you know, this is real life, but it, it was incredibly entertaining. Um, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I mean that, yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating story. Uh, your, your time working with them, you know, c- yeah, could devote we were, a whole, whole show to that, I think. But, um, I mean, I, I have no idea how anybody could have come up with us as their producers, <laughs> but I feel like we did save their lives. Yeah. At least for a time. Oh, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. Um, well, uh, thank you so much once again, Tina, for, for all of your time today. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you um, and an honour to have you on the show. Um, and personally, as a, as a huge fan, it's just been it's just been great chatting to you. Thank you. And one more time uh, before we finish up, I'll just uh, run through those dates again for the remaining love tour. They are May twenty fifth at the Shalodian Theatre in Oxford, May twenty seventh at the Electric Ballroom in London, and May twenty eighth at the Brudenell Social Club in Leeds. Um, Tina, thank you so much. It's been brilliant. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.